Thanks, Keith. Thanks, uh, guys, for teaching us some new songs as well. Beautiful songs, beautiful words, which just help us to connect with God and connect with Jesus and to worship him as we come together. And one of the main reasons that we've been here today is to worship God. We're doing lots of things this morning. We've had tea and coffee. We're encouraging each other. We're spending time with each other, hopefully encouraging and challenging each other to, to press on towards that goal that Keith was talking about. We're going to have some Bible teaching and so on. But one of the main reasons we've come this morning is to worship God. But why do we worship God? Why do we worship God? Well, Psalm 147 says that God takes pleasure in those that honour him. God takes pleasure in those that honour him. So we worship God to bring him honour and glory. God receives pleasure when we come to him, when we worship him, when we bring our lives to worship him. And worship is about bringing God pleasure. And that's not just limited to church services like this morning. We can worship God on our own at home. We can worship God in the car you might want to just kind of keep one eye open as you're going along, but you know, we can worship God anywhere, on our own at home or in a group of people. We can worship God, we can bring in pleasure by the way we behave at work. The way we work and the way we conduct ourselves can be acts of worship if they honour God and bring Him glory by the way that we relate to each other, by the way we behave as husbands and wives to one another or as a parent or as a child or as a friend, as, as a companion. The way that our behaviour uh, is lived out can, can be an act of worship to God if it's done for his glory. But I want us to focus especially today on what it means to worship God authentically and biblically when we come together as a group of Christians in the way that we've done this morning. Whether that's in a small group uh, during the week, perhaps on a, in, in home group, and by the way our home groups are every, just as, every bit as much a church service, a church meeting, they're under the authority of the church and the elders, they're groups of Christians meeting in the name of Jesus, so what happens here on a Sunday it's just the same as what happens on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. They're, they're all the same thing when two or three gather together in Jesus' name. But whether it's two or three or, or a home group of perhaps a dozen, or whether it's a, a much larger gathering like this, there's things that we do, that there's components that have to take place for us to be able to worship God authentically and biblically. And I want to look at that this morning, about those times that we gather together, whether it's small groups or large groups like this morning. As we study the Bible, we discover that there are some components of worship. If you go right the way through the Bible and if you look at the different words that are translated in English as worship, that there's three Hebrew words, there's two Greek words, and when you look at them, we haven't got time this morning, but when you, you pull the, the kind of truths out of them, what you discover is there are these four component parts to what biblical worship is about. Firstly, it's about acknowledging who God is. As we come before him, there's an acknowledgement in our hearts of who God is, of his greatness, of his wonders, of his power, and so on. Then we demonstrate, or, or from that acknowledgement of who God is, we should then, our hearts should move to demonstrate a, a, a deep and holy respect for him, a sense of real awe. The Bible talks about godly fear. Not that we're scared of God, but there's a sense of awe and fear as of his majesty, of his greatness as we come before him. And as we stand before him, or kneel before him, or uh, come before him, then God wants us to then move from standing in awe, from being amazed at his greatness, to actually coming to him, and to approaching him, and to encounter him. Not to stay afar, but to come close. And to do that in an acceptable way. Hebrews talks about, let us worship our God acceptably and with reverence, because our God is a consuming fire. So there's a, there's a good way to worship, and there's a bad way. And it's about coming with uh, uh, awe and reverence before God, but not staying at a distance, the Bible talks about, so let us approach the throne of grace. We're called to come near. And as we come near, to bring God our love. 
One of the Greek words that's translated worship is proskunia, which means to bow and to kiss the feet of the one you're worshipping. And, and, and that's translated as worship uh, in the New Testament. It's one of the two Greek words. And so intrinsic in the idea of worship, biblical worship, is that we come to God and that we bring him our love, our affections, our emotions, our attention is brought to God. We don't stay at a distance. And then part of our giving our love and our affections, it's not just about that, it's about giving totally of who and what we are. As we come to him, we're giving of ourselves to him, and that will be lived out in all sorts of different ways. And that, essentially, is what biblical worship is. That might look very different for different people in different settings and so on, but they are the biblical components. When you look at the words that are translated as worship in the English Bible, five words, um, three Hebrew words and two Greek ones, now, worship is so much more than just singing a few songs. We, we should be worshipping as we sing. So, songs are not just there to kind of break up a service and fill some slots. And some, you know, as we sing, we should be encountering God. We should be doing these things as we sing songs of worship. But singing songs, or, or, or rather worship, is so much more than just singing songs. It's about a whole lifestyle. It's about how we behave in the car. It's about how we behave at work, the thoughts we have, how we treat our wives, how we respect our parents as we honour them, how we encourage each other. It's all of that kind of stuff. But today we've had a specific time of worship, a time where we've worshipped God together through songs, through reading the scriptures, through prayer, through Bible readings and so on. We've joined together to publicly acknowledge as a group of God's people, under his authority, Jesus Christ is Lord, we're gathering in his name, and we've come together to publicly acknowledge that God is amazing, haven't we? That's what we've come to do, to say, God is great. And as we've done that, to show our respect to him, and to approach him in awe and trembling, yet with love and devotion, and to kiss his feet. He's not here physically to do that, but we do that as we express our love to God in different ways. And some of us will do that through singing, some of it's through Bible reading, through, through prayers, through silent reflection, through music, all kinds of different ways, which are ways in which we're carrying out this biblical aspect of worship. And we've done that earlier as well. Some of us were here earlier to gather, to take communion together. And we've done it in our financial offerings. Giving, we're going to look at that later, is very much an act of worship. And so we've worshipped God in different ways. And all of these different aspects are part of what it means to worship God. Now, in order for us to understand what a little bit more about worship, I want us to look today at, at the very first act of worship in the Bible. We're looking... At Genesis, we're looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and we're seeing that in, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, all of the uh, aspects of the Christian faith, all our doctrines, all our beliefs, they're all rooted there in those first 11 chapters. And that's, so, that's why it's so important that we take these first 11 chapters seriously and that we uh, understand them, because all our, uh, our doctrinal roots and origins find their root and origin there in those first 11 chapters. And today we're going to look at two people who come to God to worship him in a specific way. It's a way that we don't do today, but we're going to learn from it. And if we look closely at what they did and how they behaved and reacted, it'll help us, hopefully, a great deal to worship God more authentically and more biblically ourselves. So let's read from Genesis 4. We're going to read from Genesis 4, and we're going to read verses 1 to 16. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn, um, then you can do. If you want to just listen as I read it, that's fine. Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 16. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. 
But Abel bought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for, for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Genesis 4 tells us, that after Adam and Eve had disobeyed God, and we looked, at that week, uh, we looked at that last week, the fall and how sin came into the world and how God immediately promised the solution uh, that Jesus would come and die on the cross. But Genesis 4 tells us that after they disobeyed and after they'd begun to experience the beginnings of the results of their sin, they went on to initially have two sons. And they had more sons, and we'll read about that later in Genesis, but the first son was called Cain and the second was called Abel. We read that Cain was an arable farmer, and Abel was a, a sheep farmer. And in verses 3 and 4, we read how they brought sacrifices to God as an act of worship. They'd come to, to worship God. It's the very first worship service in the Bible. It's the first time we see people worshipping God. And they both came to worship God, and they brought sacrifices. So what did Cain bring to God? Well, verse 3 tells us that he brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel, however, brought something very different. He brought some of the firstborn of his flock. He killed them, and then he offered them to God as an act of worship. Now, what happened? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. We read that the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, we read that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. But why? What was wrong with Cain's sacrifice? Why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable to God? Why did he look with favor on that? And why did God not look with favor upon Cain's sacrifice? Well, there's two reasons. The first is that Cain had missed the point. In Genesis 3, we read, didn't we, that when Adam and Eve sinned, they knew that they were naked before God. And they knew that in a physical sense, and they felt ashamed of their nakedness. But that physical nakedness was actually just a physical outworking of their spiritual nakedness. All of a sudden, they realized that they were uh, naked and ashamed before God. And they realized that they'd become sinners. And so they tried to cover themselves with leaves. They, 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 they sewed fig leaves together, we read. And then later on, we read that God replaced their fig leaves with animal skins. And in order for those animal skins to provide covering for Adam and Eve, they'd had to be killed. Their blood had had to be shed. And it's at this point that we discover a principle that runs right the way throughout the Bible. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God requires that for the forgiveness of sins to be possible, blood had to be shed. And so God provided Adam and Eve with animal skins to cover their 
physical nakedness, but it was a, a spiritual symbolic act which was to symbolically cover their spiritual nakedness before God. And the blood that was shed by those animals in order to clothe Adam and Eve, it pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice that God had already promised just a few verses earlier. It pointed forward to a sacrifice that would shed his blood so that our sins could be dealt with, not just temporarily by putting animal skins on us, but utterly and completely and finished once and for all the act of Jesus dying on the cross. When Jesus died, he shed his blood for us. And 1 John 1 verse 7 says that the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So Abel had to some degree, we don't know exactly what was going on, how much they understood at this stage, but to some degree or other, Abel understood that in order for him to come to God, because he was a sinner, he need, there needed to be uh, bloodshed. He needed to come with a sacrifice which would cover his sin. And Abel understood that. And that's why he brought an animal sacrifice to God as an act of worship. He knew that to be able to approach God, his sins had to be covered. To have any kind of interaction with God, he had to have faith in what God would do in the future by sending this special descendant of Eve's. And we don't know how much he understood of that, but in some, some degree or other, he had faith in God's provision, in God's promise for the future. And as he had faith, he brought a sacrifice of his own, pointing forward, showing that he was putting his faith in this solution that God was going to provide in Jesus. And so as he offered his sacrifice to God, he was putting his faith in what Jesus would do on the cross 4,000 years later. Hebrews 11 verse 4 says this, By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man. The faith that he was putting, he was exerting was faith in this solution that God had promised. And so he was shedding blood and speaking of that future provision of God through Jesus dying on the cross. See, we were created to worship God. Adam and Eve were created to worship God. Cain and Abel were created to worship God. We were created to worship God. We're here to bring God honor and glory and pleasure by the way that we live our lives. But there's a problem, isn't there? And that problem is sin. And we looked at that last week. And until we deal with sin, then we can't worship God. We can't bring him pleasure. Until that problem is put right at the very core of our being. We can't interact with God. We can't have a relationship with God. Nothing we do can bring him any pleasure or glory. Jesus said this, no one comes to the Father except through me. Access to God, the ability to come to God in worship or in any way, shape or form, is only through Jesus. So if we want to fulfill our destiny and, and bring God pleasure, then we need to come to God through Jesus. And, it, and in a sense, that's what Abel was doing. 4,000 years before Jesus would actually give his life, Cain, uh, Abel rather, was coming to God through Jesus by offering this uh, animal sacrifice, pointing forward. And we today come to God through Jesus as we look back 2,000 years to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. So if we want to worship God, we need to put our faith and our trust in Jesus, don't we? In what he did upon the cross when he shed his blood as the culmination of all of those sacrifices throughout the Bible, that blood would be shed in order for forgiveness of sins to be given. And when we plug into Jesus, when we connect with Jesus through faith, when we give our lives to him, the Bible says that he forgives our sins on the basis of his blood, not animal blood this time, but on the basis of his blood, that final once and for all sacrifice as he took the punishment for our sins. So write this on your outline. Only those who've trusted in Jesus can worship God. Only those who have trusted in Jesus can worship God. We can only worship God if we have a relationship with God through Jesus. You can only bring God glory and pleasure if you put your faith and trust in Jesus first. And Abel understood that. He knew that blood had to be shed through an animal sacrifice to be able to worship 
God. But there's a second reason why Abel's sacrifice was deemed to be acceptable where Cain's wasn't. And actually I think it's the second reason which is probably the larger reason behind what's going on here. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily or as much to do with the fact that, that about animals and, and, and uh, cereal offerings and, and so on. It was to do with the attitude of the two men's hearts. The real problem here, the first issue was and is a problem, but the second problem is the big deal here. It was to do with the attitude of the two men's hearts. See, when Cain realized that God wasn't pleased with his sacrifice, Cain got angry with God. That's a strange kind of thing, isn't it? You know, Cain would come to God, would worship him, and then when, Cain, when God didn't accept his sacrifice, Cain get, got angry with God. Illogical, isn't it? And, and, and we do that sometimes, don't we? And because of his anger, what's the logical thing to do? Kill your brother. That's an, that's an obvious thing to do, isn't it? What an extreme step. You know, we've gone from sin coming into the world, and within a very short space of time, not just small sins or, or trifling sins that we might think of, but Cain actually goes out and he slaughters his brother in cold blood. This is the first worship service in the Bible, and it's the first murder in the Bible. And I think the fact that Cain responded in this way tells us a lot about the true state of his heart. It tells us what's really going on here behind the scenes. His actions after he worships God, after he brings his offering, by, by getting angry with God, by storming out, by trapping his brother, by luring him, and then by slaughtering him in cold blood, that tells us, I think, a good indication of what was really in Cain's heart when he actually came to worship God, even before he came to worship with God. And that's why God didn't look with favor upon Cain's worship, or one of the two reasons. It might have looked good, it might have sounded good on the outside, but God knew the quality of it and God knew the reality of it. God knew the true state of Cain's heart and so Cain's act of worship left God unmoved and cold. In, in 1 John 3 verse 2 we read these words, Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, Cain murdered Abel because behind the outward display of his worship, his own heart was actually full of evil. His heart was evil before he went and killed his brother. The evil didn't spring up because he'd been rejected in some way by God. This verse teaches us that Cain's heart was evil. That was the real issue here. His worship wasn't authentic. His worship certainly wasn't biblical. Because ultimately, worship is about bringing God pleasure. And Cain's offering brought no pleasure to God because God could see right into his heart and see that he was full of evil. Cain's worship was a sham. It might have looked good to those who were perhaps watching. It looked the part, but actually, ultimately, inside, it was all a sham. It was an outward thing. So what can we learn from the example of Cain and Abel? Well, when we come together for specific times of worship, such as this morning, how can we ensure that we worship God authentically? How can we ensure that we worship God biblically so that we're like Abel rather than like Cain? So that our hearts are more like Abel's hearts. Our actions are more like Abel's hearts than like Cain's hearts. We don't want to go out killing each other afterwards because we're not happy with each other. That, that wouldn't be a good outcome of a worship service. So how can we make sure that doesn't happen? I want to see just five lessons that we can learn from these two brothers. Jesus said this, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And when we worship God, we will do all sorts of physical things, such as singing, praying, taking bread and wine in communion, raising our hands, we might dance, we might kneel, we might bow down, 
There's all sorts of biblical ways, thoroughly biblical ways of expressing ourselves in worship. All of those things are thoroughly biblical. To dance, to shout, to sing, to bow down, to kneel, to sit in silence. All of those things are thoroughly and utterly biblical. But the physical things we do are outward ways of expressing something spiritual, something deep in our spirit. So write this down, number one. Worship is a spiritual activity which will be seen in physical ways. Worship is a spiritual activity which will be seen in physical ways. Whenever we engage in worshipping God, we also express that worship in a physical way, to some degree or other. Even if we're just bowing our heads or closing our eyes, there will be some physical outworking of what is going on in our hearts. Now there's two traps that we can fall into in this area of, of expressing ourselves in worship or, or not expressing ourselves. The first is that we can limit our worship to just the spiritual realm. We're suspicious, perhaps some of us, of anything that's physical, anything that's demonstrative, so we, we kind of bottle it all up and we keep it all in here. And we have this great joy, but it's a joy so deep we can't really get it out, we can't really find that deep, that deep joy that we talk about. In other words, our, our bodies, our mouths, never quite get round to expressing and demonstrating physically and outwardly what's on the inside. That's unbiblical. Now, I realize that we all have different personalities, and some of us are extroverts, and some of us are introverts, and we operate, don't we, and we, we worship in a particular cultural setting, and, and we've got our kind of British culture and all, and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, for worship to be authentic and to be biblical, part of worship is about coming. Proscunio, the word means to bow, to kiss, to show love, to demonstrate affection. There ought to be some physical outward expression of our worship. Now, that doesn't mean we all have to jump up and dance around and all the rest of it. If you want to do that, that's utterly, completely biblical. But not all of us are going to be able to do that because of our personalities and, and our culture and so on. But here's a gentle challenge for those of us who are more introverted and find it difficult, perhaps, to express our emotions. How can we be more expressive? How can you, how can I, how can we be more expressive of our emotions in our worship? How can we be more expressive so that our Physical actions are an outward demonstration of what is going on in our heart. How can we be more expressive? The second trap we can fall into is that we can turn up at church and, and we can be like Cain. We might look the part. We're, we're singing, we're clapping, we're, we're playing an instrument, we're raising our hands, we might pray out loud, we might have some part in the service. But then internally, our hearts can actually be cold. So we might look, if someone else was looking at us, and say, wow, that guy's just totally enjoying Jesus and worshipping him and he's waving his hands around and he's jigging around and, and that might be fantastic and that's utterly biblical to, to worship God like that, but actually, internally, our hearts could be cold. So what is actually going on on the outside is really not much of a clue to what's going on on the inside. And we can sit in silence with our heads bowed or we can be dancing around and both of those things are utterly biblical and, and and right to do and in, in our response to God. And only God really knows what's going on on the inside. So we need to make sure that the physical aspect of our worship isn't meaningless and that we're not just going through the motions. So again, a gentle challenge to those of us who have public roles in worship, to those of us who are perhaps more physically expressive in worship. Does what we are physically doing during a time of worship match the reality of our heart or is it just us going through the motions just doing something because that's what I do that's how, I, that's how we worship God we need to make sure that however we express ourselves even if it's just in the, the smallest of physical expressions that that is a, rea is, a, is a reality of what is really going on in our heart and that it matches up and that's what we see with Cain you see his heart 
clearly wasn't right on the inside. He was living one thing. He was acting in one way, but his heart wasn't right inside. And we need to ensure that we're living pure and holy lives so that we can worship authentically and biblically. See, we can't indulge in sinful things all week and then expect to worship God authentically on a Sunday. It doesn't work that way. We can't you know, be out there messing around with, and, and making a mess of our lives all week and then turn up at church on Sunday and worship God. We might think that nobody else knows what goes on in our lives, and that might be true. But the reality is that the state of our hearts will affect everybody else. See, worship takes place in the spiritual realm and the physical realm. And if I turn up and I'm not right with God and my life's been a mess this week, you may not know that. You probably won't know that. But my heart attitude with God will affect everybody else. And it's not always tangible. And you might think, the service was flat this morning. The worship didn't seem... Maybe it's because some of us are not in the right place spiritually. How we are before God will affect other people in worship. And how we are is also seen by God. You see, we might be able to hide other people, might be able to fool other people, but Jesus, but God, the Holy Spirit, sees right into our hearts. Paul teaches us these kind of things in, in communion, in, in his teaching on communion in 1 Corinthians 11. Look at what he says. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. If we have sin that we know of in our lives, what we call unconfessed sin, and we've not confessed it, we've not repented of it, and and then we take communion together, the Bible says we're sinning against Jesus himself. And if we behave wrongly towards each other, then we're sinning against one another as we worship. If we've got sin that we know of in our lives, we, we need to deal with it. And that's not just... Linked, uh, limited to communion. It's true of every gathering, whether it's the family service, prayer meeting this evening, home groups during the week. We can't come with a life full of sin, with an impure heart, and then worship God. So number two, write this down. Worship requires a pure heart. Worship requires a pure heart. When you come, when we come, when I come to worship God, God sees straight through my outward displays. I can be jumping around, I can be looking really deeply ingrained in, in worshipping God but God sees what's there really there and God sees my heart as to what it's really like is there unconfessed sin that, that's, that I've not repented of or am I in a right relationship with God and if I'm going to worship God my heart needs to be right because God knows every tiny detail of our hearts what we've been doing all week what we're thinking what our attitudes are and it's not that God wants to exclude us uh, from worshipping Him when the Bible talks about uh, putting ourselves right and, 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 or, or not taking communion because we've been sinning and, and, and doing stuff that we shouldn't be doing, God isn't trying to exclude us from worship. That's not what this is about. I remember someone saying, well, I can't come to church on Sunday and, and take communion because I've done this. That's not the point. What God wants us to do is sort out the problem and get yourself to worship. It's not about excluding us from worship. It's about saying, you need to be here. You need to be worshipping me. So sort out whatever it is that's wrong and come and worship. God wants us to come and, and to stop first and to put right whatever's wrong, but then come and worship. And so often, you know, Satan's so clever because he can use our mistakes, our messes, and tell us, well, you know, because you've done that this week, because you've looked at that, said that, been there, whatever it might be, then how on earth can you go to church and worship? And, and that's true. That is true in one sense. And we need to then repent of that sin and confess that sin to God and re- repent of it and turn away from it. But the wonderful thing is the Bible talks about the throne of God being a throne of grace. 
And although it's a, a bright and an awesome throne, and the one who sits upon it, the Bible says all who will flee before him because of his greatness, yet the Bible also says that that throne of God is a throne of grace. And I can make the biggest mistakes of my life this week. And that's not to trifle or, or to downplay the reality of sin, I'm not. But nothing, can, nothing that we can do can ever keep us from Jesus. We can never out-sin God's grace. So put the, the sin right. Repent of it, confess it, turn away from it and come and worship God. And come to that throne of grace where God says, come and, you don't deserve to be here. None of us deserve to be here. You're all sinful wretches, but I've changed you and I've given you my spirit and your life and I've clashed you as now being holy and I've, I've given you the holiness of Jesus. So come and worship me. Come and spend time with me. Come before me. Come and kiss my feet. Don't let our sins take us away or prevent us from worshipping God. But we do need to deal with our sin. I want to pause right now. And I want us just to close our eyes, bow our heads, and just to stop. And if you know this morning that you are not right with God, you've come to church, you've come to worship, or maybe you've just come because you had to, but you know perhaps in your heart this morning that, that, that you're not right with God. The stuff that you've done, things that you've said, things you've looked at, actions you've had, Whatever it might be. If you know that you're not right with God this morning, then put that right right now. Don't wait. Don't let Satan take advantage. Come to the throne of grace and receive that mercy and that love that God gives us in our time of need. If that's you this morning, just reach out to God right now, just in the quietness of your own heart, and just to say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've blown it. But thank you, Jesus, that you forgive me turn away right now and I turn back to you and I want to live for you Lord Cain's heart was clearly full of rivalry with Abel even before he offered his sacrifice we, we read didn't we his own actions were evil 1 John 3 verse 12 and it's possible for us to be at odds with each other as Christians, to be perhaps in rivalry. We might come along and outwardly worship God on Sundays as if everything's fine and everything's great, but the, you know, the Bible teaches that if I know that I've upset or hurt someone, or if there's a problem between us, then I need to try. can't always do it because only, it's only as, so far as it depends on me, but I need to try and put that right before I come to worship God. Jesus said this, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there that you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, before we come and worship God, as part of a collective gathering of worship like this, and we know that, you know, I've said something this week which was out of order, which was wrong, or this person seems to have a problem with me, or there's been a clash, or there's been some kind of problem, or I need to forgive this person, or whatever it might be. We need to put that straight before we come to worship. Again, this isn't an attempt to preclude us from worship. It's not, uh, or, or to exclude us from worship. It's not an attempt to stop us coming. It's about putting the problem right and then coming and worshipping God. See, the worship of God cannot exist alongside arrogance and rudeness and jealousy and envy and rivalry and bitterness and unforgiveness and relationship breakdown. God blesses unity. But if there are problems behind the scenes, then there'll be problems in our church that we might not even realize if two people are, are not talking to each other our services will be flat they'll be missing that something special to say nothing 
of what it means to God. So write this down. Worship requires unity with fellow Christians. I'm going to come here and worship you to, with you together this morning. I need to be in a right relationship with you. I need to make sure that I'm in a right relationship with you and you with me, so far as it depends on me. So once again, I just want us to bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you know that there's a problem between you and another Christian here this morning, or perhaps in another church, but, but, but especially in this congregation, then now is the time to sort that out with God. Don't put that off. Again, don't let Satan take advantage. The Bible talks about the fact that we're not unaware of his schemes. So let's not let Satan take advantage. Let's commit right now, whether it's just saying, Lord Jesus, I choose to forgive this person for the way that they've made me feel, for what they said, for what they did. I choose to forgive them and I leave it there at the cross. Or maybe it's that you commit yourself right now to say, I'm going to go and I'm going to speak with my brother or my sister afterwards and I'm going to put this right. There's an opportunity for you to commit that before God right now before we go any further. Fourthly, Cain's problem was that although he'd showed up looking as if he was worshipping, his heart was actually spiritually empty. He had nothing to bring to God in worship. It, lo- it looked good on the outside, but he was empty. You know, our hearts will only be full of things to bring to God and emotion and affection and love and devotion if we've been spending time with God during the week. If we've been nowhere with God, might not have been indulging any great sin, but if we've not taken that time to to connect with God, to, to invest in our relationship with Jesus, in, in reading the Bible, in prayer and so on, then when we come to God on a Sunday, then our hearts will be flat and empty. The intention is that as we come together, that we contribute collectively, whether that's by praying out loud, whether that's by taking part in some way, or just bringing our hearts and together, in an unseen spiritual way, we collectively worship God. But it does require preparation. When God met with Israel on Mount Sinai, he wanted them to prepare themselves. Look at what it says. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and have them spend today and tomorrow preparing themselves. On that day, I, the Lord, will come down on Mount Sinai and all the people will see me. And the Bible teaches that we as a group of Christians, that when we gather in the name of Jesus, then Jesus is here. His presence is among us in a spiritual way, in a special way. And how we approach any gathering of Christians that are meeting in Jesus' name, whether it's the communion service, whether it's the prayer meeting, whether it's the family service now, uh, or our home groups, is crucial. If we haven't been preparing our hearts in an ongoing way throughout the week and throughout the day, through reading our Bibles, through investing in our relationship with God through prayer and so on, then although we might show up looking as if we're worshipping, in reality, our hearts will probably be empty and we'll have nothing to bring to God nothing to contribute, whether that's out loud or in the silence of our hearts in response to God. So write this down. Worship requires preparation. Worship requires preparation. If I just pitch up on a Sunday without having been anywhere with God during the week, it's not going to go so well. It's not going to run so well. It's not going to be the thing it should be. And preparation is about being ready to come to worship. It's about being here on time so that we're not late, we're not hurried. It means making sure that we're out of our beds early enough on a Sunday so that we get here on time. Part of what it means to worship God is to respond to who he is with great reverence and awe. We stand before the living God and we worship him before his throne. 
that's who we've come to worship. And, and, and turning up five or ten minutes late to church service isn't really an act of respect or reverence, is it? And if we're involved in some aspect of the service, you know, whether it's the band or Sunday school, then not only do we need to be here on time, but we actually need to be here extra early if we're going to play our part and really be prepared to worship God. Now, I know that things happen, don't get me wrong. Babies fill their nappies, cars break down, alarms don't go off, kids get awkward. You can guarantee everything kicks off at that kind of 10 minutes before you're just about to leave the house and somehow, you know, your children have lost their shoes. How come that's possible? They were there and the keys have disappeared. I know all that. I get all that, believe me. And God's a God of grace and, you know, and I understand that. But all things being equal, we should normally be able to be here, shouldn't we? with plenty of time to spare, so that we're both prepared and ready to worship God. And our last point is linked to that of preparation, and it's the concept of sacrifice. A consistent theme running right the way throughout the Bible, intrinsic to the idea of worship, is the idea of sacrifice. Part of bringing pleasure and glory to God is by giving him something. And if we're going to, be, if, if we're going to give God something, then, we ha- then what we bring him has to be of value. We can never bring God enough. We can never do enough for God, I understand that, but intrinsic in, in worshipping God is by bringing something of value to God and of value to us. So there's a cost to be involved. There's a cost involved in our worship. Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Not a, not a dead animal now, put on an altar, but as a living sacrifice, your life given over, sacrifice for God holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The Greek word there is logical, literally. In other words, this is your rational, sane, logical response to who God is, is to give yourself as a living sacrifice. Now, we're not called to bring animals anymore to God, are we? They were merely pointers, pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But God still wants sacrifice in worship. He wants us to now give ourselves to him and give of ourselves in completeness. Biblical worship always involves giving of who we are and what we are. Giving God our attention, giving God our emotions, giving of our possessions, of our finances, of our time, of our gifts and abilities. If, for instance, we're leading the service, then we'll have to sacrifice. Keith didn't just kind of walk in the door this morning and, and, and do what he did this morning. He had to give some time up during the week to make this happen. The band have had to practice and so on. And different people involved have to give. And it's about sacrifice, isn't it? Giving of our time. Sacrificial worship is also about giving financially. Whether you give in the collection bag or via standing order or however you give is actually irrelevant. But giving of our finances is an act of worship. When we give, we're worshipping God. It's not just about making sure the church has enough funds. I mean, I mean that's part of it. We need to pay the bills and, 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 and finance the stuff we're doing. But that's actually really an irrelevance because when we give to God, it's about worship. It is God we're giving to. You're not giving to Regent. You're not giving to Regent Chapel. When we give, whether it's standing order or, or, or the bag or whatever, what we're doing is we're bringing something to God and we're, and we're responding to who God is and we're giving to God in worship. So your financial giving reflect, reflects how you view God and it reflects on your relationship with God. It's not the amount that's important. It's the state of the heart. It's the, the attitude with which we give and how we give. You're saying to God, you are worthy of all that I am and all that I have and your giving is something that has cost you. You're giving something that has cost you to God to himself. Can I suggest that if it's not costly to you, if your financial giving, if the giving in other ways in your life isn't costly, then you're, 
if you're not having to go without, if, if it doesn't mean switching the TV off to prepare for what we're doing today, or, or if it doesn't mean having to go without something financially in order to give, then we're not really worshipping in our giving because giving requires going without. It's giving of what I have and I no longer have it. And I've given this now in worship to God. Giving, intrinsic to giving, is sacrifice. At the heart of giving to God is the concept of sacrificing something special to us. So number five, worship requires sacrifice. Whether it's a sacrifice of time or of energy or of money or of our abilities, worship requires sacrifice. God wants us to commit ourselves to prioritizing our worship of him. It's what we're created for. So it needs to be a priority. We need to regularly take a really good hard look at our lives and ask ourselves, what do I need to do to make my worship more authentic and more biblical when I join with my brothers and sisters here at Regent for times of worship? What things do I need to to remove from my life? What attitudes need to change? What relationships need to be repaired so that my worship of God is coming from a pure heart? What steps do I need to take to repair relationships with my brothers and my sisters here in this church? so that my worship springs from unity, because God blesses unity. What steps do I need to take to make sure I'm better prepared, both during the week and on a Sunday morning, so that my behavior and my worship is respectful and reverent? And what steps do I need to take to ensure that part of my worship involves me giving of who and what I am and what I have to God? Let's pray. Father, we understand that you created us to to bring you pleasure, to glorify you, to worship you. We pray that you'd help us to ensure that all of our lives are acts of worship. How we live, how we behave, how we work, how we function as family, how we drive our cars. Just every aspect of our lives, Father, we understand can be acts of worship that can bring you glory and pleasure and honor. But we do pray that as a church, when we gather together, that we would be worshipping you biblically and authentically, that our hearts would be in the right place, that we would be worshipping you out of the overflow of our hearts, that we would have pure hearts and right hearts before you in, in, in right relationship with you and with one another. Help us to prepare. Help us to, to give, to sacrifice, because you are worthy. You are so worthy. In view of your mercy, you require us, you ask us to give our bodies as living sacrifices. And so, Lord, this morning, we want to give, to give in worship, right now, throughout this day, throughout this week, through our lives, that our lives might be acts of worship to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close now and sing uh, that great song, I will worship, I will bow down with all of my heart, and I will give you all my worship. I will give you all my praise and the band leaders. When the song is finished, the service will be over. If you want to talk to me about anything I've said this morning, then please do. I'll be delighted to chat with you afterwards. Thank you.